BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Chris Lambert. And my name is Travis Bean. And on today's episode, we take a journey into the dystopian abyss of Blade Runner 2049. Contrary to popular opinion, we actually aren't that crazy about Denis Villeneuve's sci-fi sequel, with Chris disappointed in the story, and me, Travis, frustrated about the visuals. We dig into the movie's deeper story, and ultimately, what's holding it back. Blade Runner 2049. That made that would have been a great way to introduce this movie. Like, <laughs> you know, you get a shot of the landscape, then the burn of the title, then Blade Runner 2049, motherfucker. You just throw it all the way back to it being an 80s action flick. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's not the film noir approach that the first Blade Runner used, but it's like, you know, a modernized version of that. Yeah. Escape from New York. Oh, Escape from L.A. Or, yeah, Escape from L.A. I'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's okay. I uh, I actually have never seen... I, this blows my mind saying it out loud, but I've never seen Escape from L.A. Oh, oh. I'm a big fan of the first movie, but I, for no, some reason have never caught the sequel. That's uh, surprising to me. Like, how many times have you seen Tammy and the T-Rex? <laughs> On the surface, that makes no sense to like use those two movies as a comparison. But knowing myself, that is a fair question. I've only yeah. seen it twice. Okay, okay. Then that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Although I, I saw it for the first time less than a year ago. Tammy? Yeah, Tammy and the T-Rex. I, it's not even a movie I really knew. I mean, I knew it existed. That's that's a lie. But I didn't know how much I needed to see it until um, <laughs> Vinegar Syndrome put out a 4K copy of it. And I was like, oh, wait. And then I caught like one clip of the movie. And I was like, oh, yeah, I need to see this. Wait, so there's a 4K copy of Tammy and the T-Rex, but there's not a 4K copy of There Will Be Blood. Um, Actually, interestingly, I think there is going to be a foreign um, issue of a... Uh, There'll be blood in 4K UHD, but uh, you're right. Like the the studio, like why are we not getting an official, like American version of this movie? It's crazy. That's insane. I've recently gotten onto the 4K kick. I had a 2013 Panasonic for years, and recently yeah. upgraded to a 4K TV, and it is such an amazing experience. This is, oh. I think, just the second 4K movie I've watched on this TV. The Blade Runner 2049? Yeah, Blade Runner 2049. Nice, yeah. And I mean, this is the kind of movie you want to watch in 4K. It looks pretty ex- exquisite. Yeah. Better it, than theater? It's, I mean, it, I, I just went to the theater um, for uh, the creator, and, like, that that did take me back and made me remember, like, oh, man, like, these are the kinds of movies I really coveted finding at the theater. But at the same time... Like to have what the 4K experience gives you, especially if you have like a good setup and you can be close to your TV, like 
it really is incredible <laughs> what we can achieve sitting on our couches, you know, <laughs> like to have this access to something this that looks this good in, in your home is crazy. It is crazy. Did you enjoy the creator? I very much did enjoy the creator. I'm a big uh, Gareth Edwards fan. That's a conversation for another episode then. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I was going to talk about the creator while we talked about this movie. So maybe we'll get into it. <laughs> I guess there is there is appropriate overlap. Uh, the main question, if people haven't listened to our Blade Runner episode, we covered Blade Runner already. Uh, and it was Travis's second time revisiting the movie. Yes. First time. But second time visiting the movie. Yeah. Second time First visiting time the movie. But... You had watched the theatrical cut. I think I watched the theatrical cut both times. Yeah, you hinted that you might, or you said that you might watch the final cut. Did you have that opportunity? I did have that opportunity. You had that opportunity. And uh, I thought that would be a pulsating aspect of our conversation today. Yeah, okay, wait, let's get into it then. Oh, wait, no. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I kind of, we can do like, we can just have a little like mini episode moment right now where I go over it. And maybe that actually would lead into Blade Runner 2049. Or we can work it into the Blade Runner 2049 conversation. I actually think it would lead into it pretty good. Yeah, I'm I'm curious. Usually we do, when did you first hear about the movie? Yeah, and yeah blah, blah, the, blah, 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 all that boring stuff. But yeah, <laughs> I want to know, how. <laughs> what did you think of the final cut versus, the, as someone who um, had only seen the theatrical, how did the final cut compare? Okay, so I did a little cheating before I watched it, and I read everything that was different about it, um, which I think was a good thing to do because I realized that not much actually changed about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoyed watching it again. Like as I stated last time, I'm now a Blade Runner fan. Like I really, I think before I don't know if I had, I didn't have a negative view of the movie, but I didn't latch onto it like other people had. had. Uh, people like Chris Lambert, and I was excited to watch it again. And, and this time, I really did like. I connected with it. I saw what it was doing. I thought it like it transcended. Like to me, I I watch a lot of movies that like I like that are just like doing the basic things I need movies to do. But then there are movies that take it to that next step. And I think Blade Runner does that. I still don't think I love it as much as everyone else, but I definitely connected with it in a way that was satisfying. Um, so the final cut. I mean, I did, you know, I learned there are a few changes that caught my eye that I was excited about. Like the color grading was changed. Like it, it looks better. Like it, it looks a little more, it's just a clear image of the world, even though the the kind of hazier 1982 look fit into the <laughs> like hardcore sci-fi uh, film noir nature of the movie. But I, I did enjoy like seeing the movie in a new light. Um, but other than that, I, I, it doesn't seem like much has changed. Um, I guess some of the scenes are a little more violent, which I, I did notice and I do appreciate. But I wouldn't say that changed the experience too much for me. And the only real addition, as far as I can tell, is the unicorn thing. Um, which I don't... Hmm. I guess this is where we get into it. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, I because let's explain this for everyone who doesn't know. Like, what is the addition of the unicorn scene, Chris? What is the addition of it? Or yeah, like what is, what is it? If people haven't seen, 
a haven't seen the original Blade Runner or have seen it or, and don't know about this unicorn scene, like I did it. Like, what is it? <laughs> okay, so there was a scene in the initial cut of the movie that Ridley Scott showed to studio executives that had Deckard at one point. I think it's after his fight with Leon. He's a little drunk, a little out of it, and sitting at his piano, and he's hitting some keys. And he sees or has a daydream of a unicorn running through the woods. And that's all it is, 30 seconds, if that. And it's never brought up again until the very end of the movie when Gaff leaves the little origami unicorn. Yeah. And executives felt that it was too strange and had Ridley Scott take it out. So it wasn't in the initial theatrical version. But once he got to do his director's cut, it was one of the first things he threw back into the movie and has become a pretty big touchstone or uh, imagery for the movie. You'll see a lot of unicorn (laughs) symbolism uh, for this movie, Uh, especially even when they did the the 30th anniversary Blu-ray, I think the unicorn was the main image used in the packaging. Oh, nice. Yeah, I do have like, I have a, I feel like I have a, a shot in my eye of that now. And don't you have like a poster that has the unicorn on it? Yeah, it's okay. from the 30th wow. anniversary Blu-ray. It's the origami unicorn, the yeah. tinfoil origami unicorn rearing up with this rain spattering it. And I, I got it done. I forget the Timothy Carmony, I think might be the the artist's name he was in canton ohio and he would take window frames that has still had the windows in them mm. and do art on the glass so it looks like you're hanging a window frame or a window and it has the art on it and it was all over the akron canton airport and i ended up contacting him and getting this painting for 50 dollars or something <laughs> and i think he's in la now and selling paintings for a lot more maybe you made him realize he could make it a career I think he was already well on his way, but yeah, but like you know, my maybe patronage. He ex- yeah, he be exclusively does movie posters now, though. Right, Tim, you're pretty good at this. You should uh, just Blade Runner movie posters. Just make it happen. Yeah, that would be that would be quite thrilling. That'd be a weird turn. Um, uh, so the unicorn, the unicorn, did it work for you? Not as not as impressive. Um, okay, as... so here's my here's the headline that I think the inclusion of the unicorn sequence, like. Hmm. I don't think, I guess I wouldn't argue that it either helps or hurts the movie. I definitely like the inclusion of it and everything we talked about on the Blade Runner episode. Go listen to it, guys. It was great. Um, I, I, you know, it does introduce a lot of psychological, philosophical, it, it kind of adds to the meat of the movie's commentary in a way. Like, technically it does. Like, it introduces a different conversation to be had at the very end of the movie and it kind of makes you rethink everything in the movie which i like when movies do that it's cool it makes a a movie like linger with you longer afterwards at the same time especially and i had this thought as i was watching blade runner 2049 i felt like it the question of whether or not deckard was a replicant became a bit of an overwhelming one and became this like it, it now feels like it's the entire reason. 
gosh, I guess I, I don't know how to state this, but other than like, I feel like that question has now become ever present and is an important part of like understanding the movie where you didn't necessarily need it for Blade Runner to work. Like I watched Blade Runner theatrical cut, the unicorn thing to uh, thing at the end made sense to me in terms of Rachel and what she represented and like this new life Deckard was going off to live. Like there was a lot wrapped up in there that didn't need all that extra stuff to work. And now with all that extra stuff in there, I can't help but think that like, A, that's all people care about now. It's answering this question of whether or not Deckard is a replicant. When I think the question of whether Deckard is or is not a replicant is just first and foremost, A, like that's, it's important for that question to exist and not have an answer. (laughs) I think that's the power of the movie is that at the end, he is just presented with this unicorn that makes him have this question about himself. Like, how does this guy know about the unicorn? And it's not a question of whether or not, like, am I or am I not a replicant? The question is, like, am I really so different different from replicants? It's this moment that centers him and makes him realize, like, the, the point of existence in humanity and all that and the kind of life he should be living. I feel like people just got obsessive whether or not he is or is not a replicant. And that then bled into Blade Runner 2049, where that is kind of the whole movie's thrust. Is K human or is he this hybrid? Like, what is he? What is his real existence? And like, I feel like that has just become what these movies are about in a way. That This is just from my distance perspective. I'm not like wrapped up in the Blade Runner fandom, but like, just doing some Googling, like being on the Reddit page, like knowing the kind of questions people want to answer. Like it seems a lot of what people care about and it just represents something I don't care about. (laughs) I think that's fair. I was just in this conversation the other day in a Reddit post and people were going back and forth about, you know, this and that and other people were coming in and saying exactly what you said. It doesn't matter. Yeah. If we have a definitive answer one way or the other, the point is we're not supposed to be able to tell. Right. That's the whole thing. That even at the end, Deckard goes from somebody who was judging replicants as other to someone who doesn't care and doesn't see a difference, whether that's in himself or in others. It yeah. just doesn't matter. And that should be the point that the viewer has as well, is that it doesn't really matter it's just funny that ridley scott worked so hard to make sure that it did yeah and like that aspect of it like makes me kind of not like it like the fact that the artist behind the picture who has full control over this existential question that's gonna plague the movie like feels the need to give it an answer like it kind of makes me question (laughs) how much i trust ridley scott i guess I think that's fair. I mean, it always goes to the death of the author conversation and how much we should care what they're intending versus what's there. Some of the other little fixes, uh, I believe that when the dove flies away from mm. uh, um, Batty, Roy, Batty, yeah. it's daylight in the theatrical cut <laughs> rather than huh. raining. Is it so, really? Is it not just like the lights pouring down on them? No, it was different weather entirely. Did the sun just come up at the end, like a sunrise, kind of like New Day, symbolic sort of thing? No, because Gaff then shows up and it's still raining. (laughs) It's it's full on noon. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, All right, fair enough. 
Yeah, so just little things like that. There was a, sure. a few improvements throughout. And then, yeah, the scene where Zora crashes through the glass. Okay, uh, yeah, that was what I noticed. I, so I guess that's my overall grading is like, I think it's probably like technically a better movie because of all those little things, I think those are improvements. But overall, my connection to the movie, I wouldn't say has changed very much. Okay. Did you like not having the voiceover or do you prefer the voiceover? Um, honestly, I could go either way. As I said in the last episode, it reminds me of film noir. So like, I kind of liked it for that. But at the same time, like the movie definitely doesn't need that. Um, I think it does help give the movie a little bit of ambiance. Like, I, I just think the whole opening of Blade Runner is so incredible. And we'll get into that as we talk about the opening of Blade Runner 2049. Um, I just like love the way it like sets the mood of the world and you're pulled into it. And I think the narration does help with that, but watching it on its own, it doesn't necessarily need that for that to work. That was the big thing I think was the, the lesson. Cause I first saw Blade Runner in film class mm-hmm. and I think he legitimately had us watch it with the voiceover than without the voiceover. <laughs> uh, he, he was a uh, Robert Spadoni. He was very, he didn't care what you thought. Yeah. He kind of like a classical character teacher. That's how I would be. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, this guy seems like he thinks he's in a movie or (laughs) has a little bit of that classical professor from a movie dynamic. So he's just, we're going to watch this and I'm going to make you watch it again. Yeah. Uh, Just to see the difference of voiceover and not voiceover. Um. But 2049, this was your second time watching it? It is. Number two. Yep. I think it was my... I can't remember if I saw it twice in theaters or if I just saw it the one time and this is the second watch. Man, I'm trying to remember if I saw it. I I must have not seen it in theaters if I can't remember. I usually see any movie I see in theaters. I was there opening night. Very excited. Very, very excited. And... I'm still going back and forth on how I feel about it. <laughs> okay, I watched it in March of 2018, so I saw it at home. Okay. I mm, I like it. I always The whole movie. I like the whole movie. Okay. But I don't love the movie. And there's <laughs> Yeah, you want to love the movie. Yeah, there's something that's just a little empty about it to me. Yeah, a little. (laughs) That gets a bit frustrating. And I don't like the direction that they took the Blade Runner story. Okay, yeah, let's get into that because I feel like this is is your territory right here. I mean, I don't know what I expected from a sequel to Blade Runner, really, in terms of where the plot was going to go, what the state of replicants would be. I... It's not like I had an idea in mind of what this needed to be. And even as I'm critical of it, I don't have some movies. I know immediately it should have done this. This would have been a lot cooler. We should have gone there with Blade Runner 2049. I still don't. I don't have a concrete. This is a superior idea. Right. (laughs) But I the thing that I dislike the most in sequels and that I think is the lowest hanging fruit and too many sequels go for is being essentially a soft remake 
where they repeat characters. They have a lot of references that feel not necessary to the story, but forced into the story just oh, because yeah. they know viewers will like it. And that gets really boring to me and I think is maybe too simplistic. I agree and with all that. I, I this, Sorry, go ahead. It's full of it. It's just full of it. Blade yeah. Runner 2049 is just full of it. Although I did enjoy seeing Edward James Olmos. Um, yeah, I think that's something... I mean, I, God, I feel like we should have put a disclaimer at the top of this episode because everyone loves this movie. And, I know. And, and it sounds like, Chris, at least you like it. Uh, this yeah. is the second time I've seen it, and I haven't liked it either time. <laughs> uh, I, I think I felt the exact same way as I did last time as I watched it, <laughs> where I'm just like, yeah, it's not like a terrible movie, but Jesus, like, it's just so long. Um, I I think this is something I've come to know about Denis Villeneuve, now that I know how to say his name correctly, <laughs> um, that I think he seems like a very intelligent person. And he has a good eye. Like, he can create a pretty shot. Like, this movie is a testament to that. And he is somebody who, like, I can see the machinations of his movie and what's trying to be said. But I can't help but think that, and I don't know his process and I haven't really investigated it. I don't know if it's something I can investigate. But, like, I don't know what his process is with the screenplay and kind of workshopping the screenplay and getting it to fit his vision but I feel like that is just a problem that continually plagues him is that the way he's shooting his movies, especially like post Sicario, like prisoners and on, like I feel like his movies have had a similar feel mood and aesthetic. And I just don't think he's ever had strong enough characters to fulfill the space he's creating. It, it I just get that sense that like, it's not Denis fault. Like, it's that the script really sucks <laughs> and that like the things aren't being real. And that was just my feeling this whole movie. It was like, there's not enough work being done for me to feel this here or that here, like what they're trying to get me to feel, you know? Yeah. It's covering a lot of territory and the visuals throughout, especially there's the, the scene where love's dropping the bombs and you just see, the visual in her glasses as she's getting her nails done mm -hmm. and there's the close-up of the glasses and you see the scene that she's seeing but also her eye it's such a cool shot and the fight in the water near the end is also i think the most interesting part of the movie visually uh, there's but there's a ton throughout that i'm just especially with the 4k just sitting there going oh my goodness oh my goodness uh the fight between k and deckard in the las vegas club uh-huh was yeah. also like always kind of stands out to me but it does feel so with prisoners enemy sicario even arrival but i feel like with prisoners enemy sicario there's what's the word for it there's a fullness still or an intimacy to the shot still mm -hmm. without all the huge space i agree yeah that we get i would i would throw arrival in there uh, arrivals the middle ground to me i feel like sure. arrival has moments that have that start to introduce that sense of space and minimalism two shots and it's not minimalism 
like the shot composition is empty. It's just minimalism in the sense that you have a lot of breathing room in the visuals. Right. And Arrival to me is the the midpoint where you still have a lot of the intimacy in many of the shots, but you have these moments that feel very spaced out, especially when they're in the, uh, I forget what the aliens are called now, even though I just spent 30 uh, hours writing about the movie. I don't remember. Uh, when you're in their ship, I feel like that really was the introduction to him having, and even the shots of the ship with the mist rolling over the hills, you start to get that sense of space. And that Blade Runner 2049 is where he really leaned into that mm-hmm. emptiness and hollowness and a little bit of the void in the mise-en-scene. And that Dune is then just nothing but that. Right. So, yeah, I get the... There has been this developing aesthetic that is interesting, but I don't know if the story has served it as well. Yeah. Served it in the way that it deserves. I agree. I, you know, you mentioning these... I, I feel like you brought this up last time of like that I don't like movies that have a lot of space or a lot of like empty space. And my immediate reaction to that is still like, I don't think that's true. Like, I think there are plenty of movies I like that have tons of empty space. Like we talked about Lawrence of Arabia. Um, I I think it's more just that, like, I I just wonder if the whole sci-fi epic sci-fi thing just doesn't work for Villeneuve, like for his eye, for what he's trying to capture, for what's trying to be conveyed. Because like you said, by every, by every account, Brave Order 2049 should be an incredible movie. Like you got Ryan Gosling in the center. You have uh, Harrison Ford returning as Deckard. It's a continuation of this classic story. And you have Roger Deakins doing the cinematography. You have Hans Zimmer doing the score. (laughs) Like, I, I people post images from Blade Runner 2049 all the time on Twitter and I look at the images and objectively of course like wow that looks incredible like the use of space here this really interesting way to frame like this this close up and then you throw on top of that like it looking so good in 4K you throw in the Hans Zimmer score like all of these things should be making it work and maybe people do I mean obviously people are connecting with it people love this movie but I can't help but get the sense that it's sacrificing something more important, more intimate. Like, I guess that's more of what I, I'm getting at is like his movies have started to feel less intimate to me. Like even something like Prisoners, which as we talked about in the show, like is a movie I don't really like for a lot of other reasons. Like I did think of Prisoners several times during this movie and like, well, Prisoners did a way better job of like this. You know, like yeah. I felt way more connected to the characters of prisoners when these kinds of ideas or these fears are being explored. Um, but I mean, you mentioned those movies much earlier. I would go even earlier, like thinking about Polytechnique is still my favorite Denis Villeneuve movie. I remember enjoying Incendies, although I don't remember it super well. I remember Polytechnique, Polytechnique very well, though. And that movie is very intimate. I mean, and it has nothing to do with the setting. Like, obviously, like they're in a school in that movie. Like, it's a little different. But I, I I don't think that same kind of intimacy 
that same sort of it, it it isn't even necessarily the intimacy but just how close you feel to the characters and what they're going through i just am starting to wonder if the sci-fi realm doesn't lend Villeneuve that power or he doesn't know how to navigate it yet or he hasn't had the right screenplay for it yet or god forbid <laughs> majestic cinematography from roger deakins and a soaring score from hans zimmer like doesn't fit this like what Villeneuve's strengths are like maybe someone else can bl turn Blade Runner 2049 into this incredible movie where like the visuals and the score are like all kind of drawing out what I know about these characters and like the path they're on but for whatever reason I feel like all of the elements aren't mixing and they aren't hitting me in the way they seem to hit everyone else it's just what's the struggle for me is the fact that you have very empty characters. Right. It's not as if Blade Runner spent a lot of time developing Rachel or developing Tyrell. Mm -hmm. It's not that we spent a lot of moments with Leon. Even Roy, for the most part, is pretty one notes for a lot of the movie until you get to the end and it kind of opens up. But there's such a difference in, I think, the degree of humanity or believability in the world that jumps out to me, where I never really believe Robin Wright in this movie. <laughs> I never really believe Batista, I think, does a good job. But I don't believe, what's his face? Jared Leto. Jared Leto's character Terrible. is so hollow and empty and pointless and you it's kind of a him. centerpiece of the movie's like ideological foundation like the whole new uh angle it's introducing to this universe yeah oh that's the that's the thing that's so annoying too is it's the same issue with the force awakens right you have this sequel to star wars and you go wow they can do anything it's a whole <laughs> galaxy and universe what are they going to do they could go anywhere they're not they don't have any ties to bind them they just have the established other than nostalgia yeah nostalgia and you have you know light side dark side force whatever but you have decades of video games novels comics fan fiction <laughs> like you yeah. could go so many places with this and what do they do? The First Order, which is just the remnants of the Empire. And look, they're doing everything the Empire was doing. Yeah. And they're somehow just as present as the Empire was and not lacking in any way. It feels like the Empire was never defeated. So you just have the Empire back. And that's such a cop-out and such a cheap, unoriginal, stupid thing to do. And I I feel bad then segueing that to Blade Runner 2049 because <laughs> it's the same screen. Like Hampton Francher or Fancher worked on Blade Runner. Like he wrote the Blade Runner script. He's the one that said we should name the movie Blade Runner. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. I just don't know why this was the call that they made was to say, oh, yeah, we have just Tyrell 2.0. It's Tyrell. He's picked up everything that Tyrell does. It's the same stuff, but it's a little different. It's one of the worst ways to go about a sequel. And my least favorite 
thing that a lot of sequels end up doing. And Wallace, I think, is the worst example of a character doing that that I've ever seen. It just the difference if you watch a scene with Tyrell and the believability, the humanity, mm-hmm. even just the the shots of him, he's not a character in quotes. He's a right. person in this world that is a little strange. Jared Leto in this, like <laughs> Nander Wallace is- He's hamming it up. Yeah, it's a comic book villain that's giving these big stupid speeches that's making almost no sense. The first scene with him seeing the birth of the the replicants and then cutting it open, nonsense. I mean, it's not, you can, obviously he's saying things relevant to the movie and some of the themes, but why would anybody say any of those things and do any of those things in that moment? It stretches believability and just doesn't fit, I think, the tone of the previous world at all. I and then yeah I agree when you have the showdown with Deckard what the hell is that it's just <laughs> an ultimately pointless scene and then he just disappears to go off world there's yeah. no conclusion it almost seems more of a setup for a third movie that I don't know if we're ever going to get that's all I could think when they introduced the whole underground revolution thing and like oh that just God. goes away and I'm like wait what is this movie like going for and setting up I found it very confusing. And there's the idea of f- giving context to frame subtext with the idea of we're seeing the pieces put into place for a replicant revolution. We now know that they can give birth. This is going to start a revolution. We know that Wallace is reeling in some ways. He lost his favorite angel, Love. So are we going to see the overthrow of Wallace, the rise of the replicants in this new world order established? All stuff I don't care about. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I care about the people in the movie and what's happening to them. Yeah, and the people in the movie, just setting it up to where you have Kay. I also don't like the cop-out of saying the most human thing you can do is die for a cause. It's, It's a bow to wrap up his character arc of we faked you out that he's not this special child he's just your everyday replicant but we're going to give him this opportunity by explicitly stating to you that it's human to die or to sacrifice yourself Mm -hmm. for a cause and that feels cheap to me it's almost like the the equivalent in a sci-fi movie of just having the hive mind be the enemy or a horror movie where you have the situation that seems absolutely untenable or these monsters that are vicious and how can you ever defeat them? It's like, Oh, you just have to kill the one. (laughs) That's it. Is it that like nice and sweet that you just have to find the one and do that? And that takes out all the rest. It's overly relied upon as just a way to wrap things up. And I feel like this was the equivalent of that. It's almost like a, it's not writing 101. It's more of a writing 202 kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it's still not good. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned uh, the all the replicate characters in the original Blade Runner earlier. I mean, I guess I 
can extend it to just all characters in this movie. Like you mentioned Robin, right? I, I do get us like, they don't feel like real people to me. Like everyone in Blade Runner felt like thinking about just all the replicants alone in Blade Runner and how they're just wild and naturally interesting and full of personality and ideas. Like they're very exciting antagonists because they make you question their antagonism. <laughs> like, do they have a reason to be this way? Like they kind of pull you in and have presence in a way and have full bodied characters that have arcs that you understand that you care about. I just don't see how anyone could feasibly argue that about any of the people in this movie besides K maybe who, I mean, his arc is the whole movie. So that's, it's inherently there, but people like Robin Wright are just there to deliver lines like something like her and K's whole conversation at the beginning about like having a soul, you know, and oh, he's like, God. you've done fine so far without one. Like their entire conversation is just like, just lines like that where it's the screenwriter being like, eh, right? Like this is what the movie's about. Like instead of that's not how I picture Blade Runner. Like there are little moments here and there of philosophical ponderings, but they aren't ham fisted into the dialogue like that. And they aren't ever present. Like they aren't camping constantly like they do in this movie. Like so many conversations between Kay and uh what's Anna Darmus's character? Joy. Joy. Like all of their conversations end up being about that. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it, it seems. And then you noted the the whole underground revolution and like the question they ask him, like they aren't even there to like have a real purpose other than like once again, pushing this question that plagues K. It's and again, that's kind of what I meant as I was reflecting on the unicorn scene and Blade Runner and thinking of like, did it do more harm than good? <laughs> like, are we suddenly just obsessed with this one question of like, are you or are you not human when that doesn't really matter? And this whole movie is just to me plagued by that question. Like, I, I think there is inherently drama there. And I think on the surface, like it is an interesting way to take Kay's character, especially thinking about Blade Runner and thinking about how uh batty is it batty i keep forgetting his name yeah roy batty like to me that guy is like kind of the main character of the movie in a way <laughs> yeah uh he, he his story ends up being the one you care about and you're invested in at the end so it, it seems cool to me to have k be the central character and to er inherently have that all that drama there but it, it's just the way they went about it and it just felt very dry a very dry and languid way to take on that story especially thinking about batty and how like full of life his character is and how interesting and exciting his journey is like i feel like they purposely make case journey like journey slow <laughs> methodical uh languid like it's done on purpose like in a sort of art house dramatic kind of way that i think villeneuve started with but it just it's never hitting me in this movie no and even the whole, it's not even, Joy's not even, is she AI? I guess she's AI. I guess, yeah. The whole arc there of essentially arguing whether or not she has a, a personality or not and is just programming or transcends programming and the dynamic that she and Kay have, it's interesting, but also I don't think it, 
goes far enough or almost does it feel necessary to the, the rest of the story in any way? If you were to take out that plot point, remove joy entirely, I don't think the movie changes a single bit. I mean, I guess ostensibly that whole relationship is there because you realize that Kay has never doesn't have any real human relationships and now he's like has this question of like am i human and like like why can't i be human and have human relationships like all i have is this woman named joy i guess that's her the only reason she's there somewhat i mean it's essentially trying to ask the same question that blade runner did of are the replicants people (laughs) and we get is joy a person which then villeneuve stomps on with the advertisement at the end. Yeah. And having her just be this sexual thing and calling him a Joe. And he realizes that's where he got his name. And it undermines essentially everything that they shared in some ways. So I guess it's that's kind of the point of it. Like for him to realize that these connections he has with AI I guess as I'm saying it out loud, it doesn't really make sense. Like, (laughs) I guess it just makes him feel more lonely. It makes him feel lonely. There is something to maybe it does make him want to lean in more to the human element, which is why he's so ready and willing to sacrifice himself at the end, because he realized how artificial that had been. But it's also strange. I also don't necessarily like that they made love's motivation almost like the spurned woman who's just trying to get revenge for petty reasons. Yeah. Right. That was strange. I like, I like the idea that she tries to connect with him when they're looking at Rachel's bones or doing that initial Rachel, uh, serial number conversation. She, they listen to the audio between Deckard and Rachel from back in the day. And Kay says he likes her or she likes him. That's why she's, kind of trying to get a reaction and love says somebody asking personal questions about you can really show interest and make you feel good. And then asks Kay very pointedly, do you like your job or whatever she asks him? But the subtext is clear that she wants to connect with him and it's kind of a a romantic thing. And he shuts her down because he's, committed to joy Mm -hmm. but then everything after that kind of colors what love's doing as a little revenge driven a little petty i had trouble following her motivation honestly yeah so she's loyal to wallace but it also seems like she wants to overthrow wallace right yeah or just has feelings for things and for other replicants that she is forced to push down so like that's why she cries is that like i have to stay loyal like i'm going to keep doing your bidding but i'm also sad for these people yeah and then (laughs) but in the conversation with robin wright it seems that she's she admits that she's been lying and that she essentially says robin wright's trying to kill this thing that's going to be a miracle i guess that's in line with what wallace is saying Wallace wants the child so he can figure out how to continue reproduction. So it's it's almost like Wallace and the revolutionaries have a similar... They both want the kid known, 
but for different reasons. But I still get the sense that love could have been on the side of the revolution if she just had a conversation with them or maybe wasn't entirely loyal to Wallace. I don't know. Man, it mine's racing as you're talking. I'm just thinking of like so many things, so many reasons I think this movie went in the wrong direction. Like you're introducing all these different elements of the world that kind of expand it and these really big players and these people with deeper intentions and these conflicting powers battling each other. I think this movie really stressed the scope and the bigness of the world. Like it wanted to create a rich world where there all there are all these competing entities and these competing entities are very invested in this child, whoever this child is, like what replicants are capable of and what that means for the future. It's I think that's all done in the effort to make the movie feel big when I guess I just think that's the wrong direction and something I'm really not that interested in. I'm only interested in it if it's challenging the psychology of the movie and the psychology of the characters and what they're going through. Like to me, Blade Runner, everything that happens in that movie does feel huge to me, like does have profound yeah. implications for the world just because of this single character journey we're watching and what he's going through and what he's realizing. Like to me, that completely spells out the psychology of this world and the way people are and the kind of tension they face in their everyday lives of like what it means to be human and be a part of this world. I guess I just don't get that sense from 2049. It's more done in an effort to like, it feels studio-y to me in that way of like build the yeah. world, like have all these new elements. Like we can bring Gerald Leto back later. <laughs> like if he's there and he plays this kooky character, like I just too much of that seems to be happening to me in the movie that I, I'm not as invested suddenly. in this woman at the end who's in this, building creating memories for people uh, like the build to her and all of the tension around her like it isn't really just coming from deckard and k like they're the, the movie's trying to make it bigger than that in a way that i just it feels unsuccessful to me like if, if that's really the route and they're not using those bigger entities to get at the core emotion of the movie and like you're moving you there at the very end the way like batty moves you at the end of blade runner you know I'm just not sensing that. No, not even, <laughs> not even a little bit. No, which it's is... a very languid ending where he just kind of waltzes up and Ryan Gosling dies in the steps. Like it's trying to feel like heavy and dramatic in a way that I don't know. It has none of the theatrics of Blade Runner. No, and I miss that a lot. It does feel just a lot more like a collection of story beats. Right. than uh, an actual necessary movie that we're getting. <laughs> Which baseline should, every movie should check that box. Like a movie we need that we're getting. <laughs> uh, it also, it has one of the things that annoys me the most in sequels. And I'm going to go back to Star Wars again. All right. Uh, these also came out around the same time, which is fascinating, but... <sighs> It's the what the characters have been doing in the aftermath of the first movie. And there tends to be a, especially in sequels, a they've done nothing. <laughs> the, which right. in some ways makes sense of 
most of most people live very bland lives and usually what makes up a movie is the most exciting time in someone's life so if there hasn't been that much going on sure of course it's going to be like a little basic but you look at essentially deckard has been he had a year with rachel i think it was they got pregnant almost immediately and then he leaves so that's it like all of this build up all of this all the stuff from the first movie just results in them having a year together and then him hanging out in Las Vegas for 30 years. Yeah. That's it. Kind of a nice life. He's just done. It's just so uninteresting to me. And then it's the same thing with Luke where you wonder, Oh, you know, it's return of the Jedi. What's it going to be? And then in force awakens, you're told, yeah, he started a school did it go well and now he's just been missing for 30 years floating on some rock on an island yeah i think it's a very unimaginative thing to do with your legacy characters and it happens more than i would like (laughs) it's really stupid like i i I completely agree with you and like have acknowledged all these things in my head probably as i've watched these movies but yeah you saying it out loud just like what are we doing? Like these are important people in cinema, these characters to just kind of like lazily toss them into a movie, like give them no agency or, or action in the last, like there, it just seems like a, what is that move? Yeah. It's boring. And then you mentioned, you know, Deckard's daughter. There was a, a conversation I was having on Reddit where people were wondering if Deckard's daughter was full replicant or half human, half replicants. And that getting back to is Deckard a replicant or not. Mm -hmm. And I think either way it's impressive. The person I was talking to was saying that just the kid being a full replicant isn't that interesting. I was like, well, yeah, they haven't been able to procreate. Yeah. And that's what we hear the revolutionaries say. If we can have kids, we suddenly become our own masters. Right. And we control our fate. Because right now they need Wallace to make them. And that's the kind of the enslavement that they're facing. So being able to have replicant children is a big deal. Um, And that also ties into the whole conversation of to be born is to have a soul that Kay says mm-hmm. earlier and would be the difference between like Kay not being born in quotes and Anna. That's a, that's the girl's name uh, being born mm-hmm. and having a soul. And it does feel like there's a difference between Anna and Kay in just terms of how they're acting. But I, uh, I don't know. I, if it was half human, half replicant, I don't know what that adds or subtracts. It doesn't. Yeah. I I want a slight correction here. He doesn't say to be born is to have a soul. He says to be born is to have a soul. Dot, 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 I guess. <laughs> which like to me perfectly like thinking about that line, which is like it's kind of a crucial line in a way. It, not crucial in the sense that it needs to be said, which I don't think it needs to be said. 
but crucial in the sense of like, okay, like this is spelling out the movie's intentions. Yeah. Uh, the throw in the I guess <laughs> to me is just like captures just the languidness and meanderingness of this movie. Like, I think that's my biggest complaint, honestly. If a lot of parts had been cut out, maybe like as you mentioned, the part with Joy, just things that are harping on the idea of the movie, but not exactly building on it. Um, I I think this could have been a lot more successful. But as it stands, like I I just I almost have like a moral vendetta against long movies at this point, like movies that are just become longer and longer. Like this movie has no business being two hours and 44 minutes long. It just doesn't like if you're just there to see pretty images, I guess, like that's great. Um, But I. I would say they're more pretty than like powerful images. If you want to have powerful images for two hours and 44 minutes, then I'm in. And if I feel like these images are guiding me towards like a better understanding of this character in this world, but I just don't think that's the case of this movie. It feels like it's constantly dragging us through pretty shots. And I just, like I said, a lot of people like this movie. They don't mind doing that for two hours and 44 minutes, but I found it to be a little torturous <laughs> like this, there's no reason this movie to be longer than two hours in my opinion like it can introduce all the same ideas and have all the same pretty shots at once like I'm, I just have a hard time grasping like why this movie flows and functions in the way it does and why people are just so forgiving of it like I feel like you wouldn't be forgiving of this uh, maybe just because it's Blade Runner just because it's Ryan Gosling just because it's Diddy Villeneuve like we say like oh this is a masterpiece but I feel like if anyone else is involved, like this is not excusable. I, I mean, I find it very drinkable in a way. I don't mind the runtime, even though I'm not necessarily pleased with the movie. I never find myself that unhappy while watching it the way that I am with some other movies. In the, the way I was felt- with this movie. Yeah, the creator felt started to feel interminable to me at some oh, yeah? points. Or even Oppenheimer started to feel very much. Yeah, the last third of Oppenheimer for sure. And people love the last third of Oppenheimer. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I get. I do think that there's something about yes, the Blade Runner name, the aesthetic and visuals that this movie has. You don't really find anywhere else especially in a lot of the big block mm. blockbuster sci-fi uh, john carter <laughs> uh, you're not getting shots like this uh what's another even star wars well, wasn't necessarily giving you shots like this i gotta say this everything i don't want, I mean to interrupt you but you know you're bringing up other movies like do other movies look like this part of like my frustration with this is i i feel like movies do look like this or at least like have like an epic feel to them like the creator like like Gareth Edwards movies or like a Zack Snyder movie but those are both directors that people don't like for what I believe to be more of like trivial reasons or just like just based on like them being annoyed like a story isn't handled a certain way or characters saying like dumb things like all of these things that have nothing to do with like the core meaning of a movie and what it's saying visually. Um, I, I feel like people have always hated on directors like that. And so they roll their eyes at something like the creator or anything Zack Snyder has done um, in a way they won't with the 
Blade Runner 2040, Blade Runner 2049 or a Dune, you know? It seems strange to me that, like, like I, I guess I don't know what Villeneuve is bringing to this movie that a director like Snyder doesn't bring to an epic, like, sci-fi or superhero movie. Like, there's such breath and wonder to his shots in a way that feel way more powerful than anything in this movie. I, to me, what stands out is the pacing of the shots, um, which we have talked about yes. before, but there's, I think Villeneuve sits a little more. He sure does. In the shot and tends to have a bit more But distance. to what effect? I mean, it creates a bit more of that, I guess, what I called earlier that sense of minimalism or that sense of gaze that I don't think that you necessarily like Snyder brings a lot more of a, he's like art a pop. kinetic kinetic energy to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same. Who is the, the other one that you named? Gareth Edwards. Oh, the creator. Yeah. Like Gareth Edwards, he has shots. I mean, I love rogue one a lot. I think Rogue One's actually a good example of a, a great middle ground of mm-hmm. where Villeneuve could be um, if the movies weren't so slow and he wasn't yeah. just like sitting back so much. But the creator is one where I don't think Edwards was actually going for enough. Um, it, it, it seemed like a step back to me in a lot of ways from Rogue One. Yeah, right. Uh, I thought it was a step but, back in general, but I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't... When I ranked it, I put it in the almost that category. That seems fair. I feel, yeah, I feel like narratively, visually, it's doing... It has the all the ingredients. It's just I wanted a little bit more from each thing. Yeah, um, sure. But Blade Runner 2049, I I think that people can feel a magnetism to a little bit more of that methodical nature that Villeneuve brings so, to it. Yeah. They must. Which I think can feel a little more mechanical to you than It feels methodical. very mechanical to me. Yeah. So it's like they're getting the same thing that you're getting from Snyder or Edwards, but they like the, the methodical nature of it so i get what he's doing i feel like he's the not the problem in some of these movies uh, honestly i like dune way more than i like 2049 mm-hmm. um <laughs> though i have to re dune to see if i stand by that statement i i feel like eventually we're gonna do it in the show so i will rewatch it and i do not look forward to that day yeah, I'm sorry. Because you love the original Dune a lot, right? I absolutely love David Lynch's Dune, which should tell you everything you need to know about me. Yeah. I mean, and that gets at what we're saying about like kinetic versus methodical, like, yes. intimate and human driven versus that kind of spacey minimalist uh, distance. Yeah. Uh, mm. But uh, I don't think this movie also did enough with the daughter to really matter as well. Like, especially to end with her and right. Yeah. She, I mean, she's not thrown into the equation until like the last part of the movie. Yeah. We get the, the small conversation with her 
and then her importance comes up. I don't think she actually had an autoimmune disease. No, um, I don't think so. Yeah, She's I probably think that's about to find a, that out at the end. Yeah, I think that's the cover of we just said that so we could keep you in hiding. Yes. Uh, which is very similar to the creator. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very true. Just keep, keeping Alfie in hiding until they feel like they can use her, but that gets interrupted. Um. You know, my I think my ideal sequel to Blade Runner would have been something that just flashed forward a little bit more in the same universe. Mm-hmm. Take us off world, show us post-replicant integration. What's that like? Yeah. Or even like, what's it mean if there's the last human? What's that story? <sighs> yeah. I mean, I feel like I can sum up everything I feel about this movie just by talking about the openings of each one. Where, like, I think the opening of Blade Runner, especially since both movies use an eye to start the movies, mm-hmm. um, like the opening of Blade Runner, the eye has a mysteriousness to it. Like, there's such power to it, especially with like the firework going off in it and that kind of previewing the world and like these, these weird you know rain drenched streets and like these advertisements floating around and it giving you a sense of what everyday life is like there and at the same time previewing the movies like themes and the just general aesthetic of the movie like what it's about and how the visuals inform what you're watching like all that to me like is happening right away in Blade Runner that I see it and I'm like oh like somebody visually focused somebody who's purely thinking about like establishing the aesthetic and helping you understand where you're at. Like that person made this movie where Blade Runner 2049 again feels like a little too highbrow for me at the beginning. Like it's just a shot of an eye, which fades into shots of fields, which then just leads us into what feels like a police procedural at the very beginning, like a detective walking in and just questioning somebody. Like it all feels very, again languidly performed and executed and there's like there's they're more concerned if they're being like mysteriousness and drama underpinning the whole thing than like making you part of this world and like kind of electrifying your senses in a way that Blade Runner does like I'm just more interested in a movie like that than what Phil Dove's giving me so yeah you're right like people probably do appreciate that methodical nature and I think it actually now that I'm saying it out loud does reflect more of the nature of television and people maybe like seeing television in their movies. Um, but I just, I can't help but be immediately bored by it, especially compared to Blade Runner, which I just watched. <laughs> yeah. It's fresh it's, on the mind. Uh, it's really frustrating. I Just the eye thing alone is a great contrast because the style that's on display in Blade Runner yeah. with that opening shot of the eye and the the journey towards the Tyrell Corporation and you get this sense of strangeness, boldness, mm. scope, scale, but also the eye just returning over and over and being this beautiful but also haunting thing. It puts you in such a mental, emotional, and existential place right at the beginning where the opening eye in 2049 is empty it's completely 
forced right. because the previous movie did it. That's all that it is. It's a gesture yeah. rather than something that is part of a whole or necessary or earned. And I think that's how I feel about 2049 is that so many of the choices made throughout it are gestures that are <laughs> right. made because they had to be made to placate a imagined audience or judgment or expectation for what a Blade Runner 2049 sequel should be rather than an essential story. Yeah, right. I agree with that. I I, I mean, that's probably naturally going to be a part of any of these franchise movies especially ones that get made like 30 40 years later <laughs> like a lot of it's just i mean the very fact that they did release multiple versions of blade runner was purely studio greed like what let's update it again and like make more money off it and have a new theatrical run even though there aren't really that many differences like it blade runner feels a little plagued by that ridley scott i think really wanted those differences i know i know he did um for the first cut but like to do a second cut seems very funny to me yeah i think that was also something that had just bothered him for a while like he was he was in there filming new scenes yeah that's how like into <laughs> it he was which is cool I but i just again i don't think it changes what the movie's about enough for it to be warranted yeah it's uh but it's it's very I also didn't like, I didn't really think about it the first time through, like the male female dynamic in this movie. I know the first Blade Runner, people go back and forth on the the portrayal of women in the movie, mm -hmm. but this one just felt particularly cold and cruel. I know I we kind of got into it with love, but even the final shot being of Deckard, I get that Deckard's your main character from the first movie. You're bringing him to this point of seeing his daughter, but the, all the emotional weight is put on the father looking on the daughter and we don't get anything from the daughter realizing this is her father. It seems like such a, a masculine limited view on the power of that moment. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's something where they wrote a bit more and they edited it out because they're like, audiences only care about Deckard. But I think it encapsulates the way in which this movie consistently misses the emotional thrust of everything. Yeah. That we don't get her hearing that this is her father. We don't get to see the emotional reaction to it. Uh, that we don't see her hand on the glass. We don't see both of them at the end, that it's just a shot of Deckard at the end. Eh. Yeah. The the last thing I'll say is that I couldn't help but think of a number of other movies while watching this movie and just why I liked all these other movies more. Like, A, the creator we mentioned. Like, despite whatever flaws it has, which I'm open, like, I, I think there are some things about it that probably don't work for a lot of people that I completely understand. Like, to deny the look of that movie, especially since the budget was so low, what they were able to achieve beyond just, like, looking at an image of a pretty thing, like, the way it flows and feels in that movie, like, it just feels, it feels so calculated and realized and alive in a way that I'm constantly like, well, like, none of that's happening in this movie. You know, I had just watched The Creator, so, like, it was fresh in my mind. Um, and then, I also that scene where... 
um, Kay is with Joy and Joy is like going to another woman's body and they're going to have sex. Like to me, yeah. that's what her did. Uh, with, yeah. With the same kind of situation with AI, you know? Um, and I, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. Like they do some cool stuff with it in 2049, like the holding of the hand and the, the women like flowing in and out of each other. But like it went on for a while and like, at some point it just felt like a play with visuals as opposed to it feeling like raw and dramatic and her does a fantastic job of that. It's you're so pulled into that scene and everything it says about those characters and their relationship um, in much less time. (laughs) Again, my complaint about this movie, like it just is more efficiently done and more powerfully done. So like they're not even comparable. And then the last movie I think of is 2046 which is the Wong Kar Wai's futuristic movie, which I almost would say had more of a visual influence in this movie than Blade Runner did. <laughs> like, just because, like, it's it's a more modern movie, you know? Um, they look and feel very similar, except that Wong Kar Wai, like, has a stylish sexiness to his movies, you know? Like, th- it's they're just so alive in a way that it just made me think of 2049 the whole time. And, like, man, this movie, like, there's nothing going on around these characters ever. Yeah, no, that's a painful, painful scene. Um, oh, the God. the sex scene, the sex scene. Yeah, yeah. I just thinking about like, it, especially I was thinking about her too, and realized that I had a some anticipation for how that scene was going to go because I was confusing it with her, <laughs> and when it actually played out, I was like, oh yeah. This is just like doing this visual thing because they can. Yeah. Rather than it necessarily being something a little more meaningful. And then we don't even really, what's it even matter to K at that point? What do, I guess it's it, like the blending of AI and human when he's having that own wrestle with himself. Yeah. But my issue would just be more that, like, I don't think the movie's done enough with that idea. It made me feel enough for it for this scene to hit. So now I'm just watching, like, you know, a scene that feels more like visual trickery than something emotional and powerful. Yeah. Um, the uh, the only other maybe minor thing to discuss, and then we can get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think... How into the... Prometheus Blade Runner connection are you? Uh, the movie Prometheus? Yeah. <laughs> I'm unaware of this. Okay. So I'm into in it though, because I like Prometheus. In the movie Prometheus, Peter Wayland, right? That's the yeah, yeah. the old rich dude. I'm, that I'm well aware off. of the Wayland Enterprise. Yeah. Uh he has an email in his like diary or a diary entry that mentions Eldon Tyrell. Oh, wow. So that specifically places Prometheus occurring in the same universe as Blade Runner. Uh, which, you know, Ridley Scott directs yeah, both uh-huh. movies. It seems like it might just be like an easy Easter egg. And they're all, Are they both Warner Brothers movies? That's, I don't know. It's Warner Brothers, right? It's Warner Brothers? Yeah. Uh, Covenant was 20th Century Fox. All right. I don't know what's going on there then. Uh, but uh, there's a shot in Blade Runner 2049 when they're at Wallace's 
uh, studio, uh-huh. his factory, when they're walking by all the people encased in glass, all the kind of like replicant models. And I think we see the, the series eight at one point there's a shot of, but one of the models in a tank looks like the engineers from, uh, Prometheus. Uh-huh. So that had fans <laughs> in a tizzy because they were thinking that is this actually supposed to be a Prometheus engineer? Uh, like, what does this mean? I'm only interested in it if they can do what, and, and this is genuine. Everyone hates Alien vs Predator, but I thought Alien vs Predator did a great job of blending the franchises because they have such antagonistic themes, like one being about just women and female empowerment and like their place in society and then predator being this um <laughs> machismo figure you know like kind of it, yeah. it it he's almost meant to just emasculate all the men in the original predator yeah like to have those two forces clashing like i actually thought they did something interesting with it so if they're able to do that which it seems like there's a lot of inherent ways they could do that between the alien you know just between the idea of prometheus and like meeting your maker and all that and the idea of a replicant and all that, but they would have to do a good job with it. And I don't trust studios to do a good job with anything at this point. No, neither, neither do I. I feel like every movie at this point is just a disappointment <laughs> until proven otherwise. Yeah. Sometimes um, it feels that way. Uh, but I do wish the more that I, like we've talked about it, I do wish that they would have done something with Blade Runner that would have been off world and mm-hmm. just, uh, a consequence of the first movie but not necessarily beholden to the first movie in the way this was sure. and I think that's what holds this movie back is that it keeps trying to imitate without ever really taking the opportunity to do something new I would have to agree with you yeah. okay. okay we're gonna rank this baby oh god okay okay movie rankings this is how it goes we started ranking movies at some point last year i started in january of 2022 i started ranking every movie i've watched chris started in july of 2022 so this is not our all-time movie rankings everyone gets such in such a tizzy about this no yes we've seen more movies than this these are just rankings of every movies we've watched since starting them my list is up to 458 movies Ooh, I'm at 161. All right. You're, you're, you're getting there. You're going to catch me one of these days. Um, <laughs> yeah. As a slight update, I did change my Blade Runner ranking because I do think that the uh, Final Cut is a technical improvement. And especially after our conversation we had the movie about the movie, I, I really started to enjoy it more. So now I have it at, where the hell did I put it? So I think before I had it at 240-ish. And now I have it at 195. Okay, that's a that's a leap. It's a leap. F- it's jumping over a lot of movies I really like, like looking the Boy forward Next Door. to five years from now, just having a conversation. And you're like, Chris, I went back and <laughs> I have Blade Runner on 4K now. I've rewatched. Oh wait, you have it? No, you rented it. I, I have it on it. 4K now. I've watched it more times. I adore it now. It's in the top 25. If it ever got to my top 25, it would make me hate 2049 even more. <laughs> imagine how i feel i think that's a big part of it for me is that like if i was way more attached to blade runner i'd probably really really hate this movie but I- i'm with you even though it sounds like i just complained the whole time 
I don't necessarily like this movie. It's not for me. But I agree with you in the sense that it's drinkable. Like, it's never offensive. Maybe offensive in its runtime. But beyond that, it's never <laughs> offensive to me. Like, I like all the people in it. And I like watching Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford and Ana de Armas. Like, they're all great. Um, I just don't think what's around them is so great always. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but, yeah. Okay. So, where's where's 2049 rank for you? Blade Runner 2049. It's not down in the like unforgivable portion of my rankings, <laughs> which would be like 430 and below. Um, so actually not that many movies really that are down in that region, but it is down in the not for me section. And I I'm placing it right now as I'm looking at it. I think I'm going to go. I mean, it's better than that movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. You know where I'm going to put it? <laughs> Literally right underneath Prisoners. <laughs> I mean that, that made it easy because like I definitely like prison I, I actually it's making me think I should rethink my prisoners ranking like while I don't necessarily like that movie like I can't deny that like some parts of it are powerful in ways that 2049 wasn't so I'd have to think on that but for now it's just one below Blade Runner at 413 okay yeah bump that prisoners up yeah maybe we'll see <laughs> Uh, I have 2049. I still like, mm, I'm still like a bit of a, a Villeneuve simp. Sure. So because as much as I can nitpick the story to death, the whole drinkable thing, the watchable thing to me, like it's important. if I was going to go put the movie back on right now, I could sit through it and be content. <laughs> Having just watched it, I wouldn't complain too much. So I have complaints, but I don't hate the movie. I'm just frustrated yeah. by what it is versus what I feel like it could have been or should have been. Um, but still relative to a lot of other movies that I watch, it still makes me happier it's sure. more in line with what i want to see so i have it in the impressive category uh which is tier three for me wow uh it's at number 40 uh just above the lighthouse and below scream six all right i do find that surprising like i don't disagree that it's watchable and i just put watchable in quotes um but man I, maybe I'm just getting to a point where I need something to be more than watchable because I, I feel like that did used to be my ceiling in a way. <laughs> like I used to like just crave like, oh God, please just don't let him be fucking torture. Um, but I'm, I'm maybe I've just watched a lot of good movies lately, but like that invigorate me as I'm watching them. Like I need, I need my movies to do a little bit more. It's still the visuals for me in this that are like up my alley to where that kind of wins the day for me yeah. um, All right. over some of the, the character stuff. But like, especially I'm looking at some of the movies below it, like the movies in the, just below it, Lighthouse is at the very bottom of the impressive category. So it's Blade Runners like near the bottom. And then at the top of really good is Midsummer, Bones and All, Babylon, Elvis, Black Phone, Cosmopolis, Top Gun Maverick. So it's a lot of... Like there's a very 
different aesthetic and quality i think between <laughs> those movies and this yeah but right if i had like 400 movies on my list the way that you do i'm pretty sure this would be in the the 200s right yeah we have talked about this before that you're more of a parts and pieces kind of guy this is the way i believe you put it yeah um and that like Again, I can't deny that images look nice in this movie, just on their own, separated from any everything happening. But like, I really need, like, I crave movies to be cohesive in that way, and I just like cohesive in the way that I think the aesthetic is informing the the, the visuals are informing the ideas being presented by the movie, and that makes up the aesthetic. And I and I just can't back a movie that where, where I feel the aesthetic is incomplete that the visuals aren't lending anything they can't just look pretty like to me that's not enough <laughs> like i i need it to be like giving me something so I, I i totally get how you feel and i do appreciate that aspect about this movie even though i just spent an hour complaining about it um but it's just not enough for me yeah i think this is a, a tough love episode more than it is uh <laughs> Like we both hated this movie episode. God, for in a way, I root for a movie like this because, like, I really do like how Villeneuve started his career. Like, I really want to watch rewatch Sicario because I think I might like it this time. Yeah, and I think Polytechnic is awesome. Like, I think he has it. I don't know. He's just go- he's just gone on a path that everybody has loved, and I haven't loved. I don't know. I just it, I crave for the old days. I guess. Because no one saw Polytechnic back when it came out, I feel like, you know, it wasn't like it had like a cult audience. I still haven't seen it. Oh, gosh. I've seen better in in Cindy's. Oh, wow. Yeah. No. Anyway. What's what's next for us? Oh, wow. We didn't even talk about what's next. I did just order Sicario on 4K. Yeah? Yeah, I bet that would be Oh, no. I ordered the Blu-ray. Did you really? No. I was going to say, I didn't even know if it was on 4K. Yeah, that's dumb. Oh, I feel dumb. Well, yeah. I mean, you could probably return it. Yeah, or just it watch it on Blu-ray. It was an eBay purchase. <laughs> oh, then you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> All right, in the last month, let's look at our top articles. Um, What's one we haven't covered here? Wow, we've covered all of them. <laughs> we have her the departed uh shutter island oh i keep forgetting we did and it. fight club we i can't believe we haven't done fight club should we just do fight club i mean i'm into that okay all right sounds good to me yeah let's do it beautiful all right and so we're gonna wrap up anything else anybody have anything else to say you chris no no the lighting crew gaffers anybody no okay so we're gonna end the show but we're gonna end it (laughs) by saying lights camera see ya see ya oh wow you you took such a long beat i didn't know where to go